This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. It's just a blessing to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I am the pastoral intern here at Trinity. Thank you, guys. Um, And it is just great to be able to worship the Lord on what is Palm Sunday. I'm sure if you didn't realize it was, the kids... Uh, jogged your memory a little bit as they came parading through with all the eagerness that children have for hitting each other with palm branches. Um, but we actually are celebrating this day in a way that is Jesus marching into Jerusalem towards Holy Week, um, ultimately to the cross and the resurrection that we will celebrate on Easter. And we have been in the Gospel of Luke here for months, walking through this same timeline. And we actually talked about this in Luke chapter 19 a couple weeks ago with Zach, so we will not be talking about that today, but we will be talking this morning in Luke 22, uh, the last Passover that Jesus has with his disciples. And this is a meal that Jesus says he was eager to have with his followers because it was the last meal that they would have together like this until the coming of the kingdom. It's a time that He is setting as a placeholder as he changes the meal into something new. It's now the Lord's Supper. It's what we take in communion each week here at Trinity. And it is meant for us to see this as a reminder of what Jesus has done, but also look forward to the future of when we get to have it again with him. It's a promise of a future forever together. In the same way that an engagement ring would be given to your fiance at the time of promising that future forever. It's a placeholder, but it's also meant to change us in the moment. You see, when I got engaged to my wife, it changed in that moment that I gave that ring. There was a promise, and there was something to look to about that promise. It was supposed to change the moment that we were engaged. We become changing in our relationship. And as we see the Lord give this supper this morning, we're going to see that he changes our relationships in three different ways. He changes the way that we relate to God. He changes the way that we relate to one another as a family. And he changes the way that we relate to the world around us. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 22 this morning. I invite you all to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Uh, I will be beginning in verse 14 and reading through 38. Uh, Luke says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. Oh, that's a long one, sorry. Uh, but we see in this institution of the Lord's Supper that Jesus is giving us a way to remember that we have a promise forever. It's given to us in a way that is meant to change our relationship to God as we take it. In the same way that I got engaged to my wife and it changed our relationship in that moment as it was a promise forever. But until that ring was given, there was no promise. There was no thing to look to to understand that that was a, a reality that was going to come to fruition. And we see this in the fact that our language changes when we talk about engagement. I was my wife's boyfriend until the ring was given. I immediately changed to her fiance. But not just the language that we change, it's also our reality and our interaction with one another. Date nights are different. You have this reality that you're looking towards. You're looking towards the consummation of marriage that is going to bring about a future forever together till death do us part. And this reality really hit me actually five days prior to me proposing to my now wife. Um, when we were hanging out at my parents, it was a Sunday afternoon that I'll never forget. Uh, that Friday, I was going to propose to her. I already had the ring. It was sitting upstairs. I already had the plan in place. I already knew what was going to happen. Everything was set. The proposal was going to go on, and we would be engaged. And we were sitting there talking, just hanging out, and my wife mentioned to me that she had a family friend from back home that was giving away puppies. And I'm a dog person. I love dogs. My wife loves dogs. I'm like, hey, this is going to be a great week. We're going to have puppy and get engaged. This is amazing. But, and so I am sitting there thinking how great this is going to be. And I tell my wife, I was like, yeah, we should do this. We should get a puppy. Fully expecting my wife to be so excited. It was going to be a great day. Uh, instead, my wife actually burst into tears and begins crying unconsolably. And she is just exclaiming to me in between sobs in somewhat of anger as well. She says, no, we cannot get a puppy because there's no we. We can't do anything. I'm sitting there thinking, it's like, oh man. Uh, I am not great when my wife is crying in general, but this is one of the moments that I look back to and I'm like, I had no idea what to say. All I could think of in my head was, woman, can you just wait five days? Like this is gonna sort itself out. But Morgan was hitting on this reality that we understand that Without something given, without the ring put out there, there was no promise. There was nothing for her to look to and understand that we had this promised future together, no matter what I said. And we see Jesus changing the, the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper into something new that we can 
relate to, we can look to and be assured of our changed relationship with God. So he does this in how he changes how the elements are used. First, we look at the unleavened bread that was used at a Passover meal. Uh, unleavened bread simply means bread without yeast. It's not been given a chance to rise. Uh, and the reason for this initially in Exodus 12 was that God was showing the Israelites the expediency with which he was going to take them out. He said there was no time for bread to rise, so you don't even need to put leaven in it. But over the generations, this idea of leaven and yeast had taken on a new meaning. It had taken on this idea of sin and corruption. We see this when Jesus tells us that to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware of this corruption, this sin that creeps into everyone's life. And so unleavened bread was literally sinless bread given at the Passover meal. And we see verse 19, Jesus says, and, or, and he took it, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is taking on the form of that bread for us. He's saying, I am the only sinless one that has ever walked this earth. And I am going to be broken so that you are not broken. I'm going to be broken because you deserve it, but I'm going to be broken so that you can become like me, so that you can be seen in the eyes of the Father as sinless because I am broken for you. Then he goes on to change the wine, and he takes this cup, and he makes it a new, different cup than it was. See, the Passover meal had four cups of wine that you would take. Two would come before the meal, two would come after, and each of which was an allusion back to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, when God made a promise to Israel through Moses. He said, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. The four promises that signified in the four cups of the Passover. And we know that Jesus is taking this third cup here in verse 20 because Luke goes to tell us that it's after they had eaten, he takes it saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is saying, this is the cup of redemption, but it is only redemption because it is paid for by my blood. None of the sacrificial lambs had mattered up until this point. We know from Hebrews that he tells us no animal's blood could ever pay for sin, but only the blood of the Messiah, the Savior, the sinless one that is able to pay so that we might be redeemed, we might be brought back to Christ through him to God. We are redeemed from our sin and our slavery to sin. We are brought back because Jesus in the garden takes on a new cup and he takes on God's wrath. And he says, Father, that if, if it's your will, may this cup be removed from you, from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus drank the full wrath of God that we deserved so that we could drink the cup of his redemption, signifying his blood poured out for us. So when we come to this table, when you come to take these elements, it is acknowledging that you are united through Christ's blood, you are redeemed. You are brought back and made sinless before God because of the bread that is broken for you that is his body. You come to this table acknowledging that you are fully assured when you look to the table, when you look to the elements, when you look to the Lord's Supper, that you are fully made perfect in the eyes of God. 
that one day when we see the consummation of this promised reality, that we will be before God forever and we can have full assurance of our right standing with him. It's changed our relationship with the Father. And it not only changes our relationship with him, but it takes us from children of wrath to children of the most high God. And we use this language because we understand that when you come to this table, you're coming as a family. You see, Jesus takes this meal and he transforms the family lines. In the same way that when I got engaged to my wife, there were new family lines drawn and new family expectations made. I first had to come before I even proposed and I would, went and asked her father's blessing in order to marry his daughter. And I didn't do this because I believe Morgan incapable of making a decision for herself. I didn't do this because there's some dowry that needed to be paid. I didn't do this because it was legally binding and needed to ask for his permission. I did this out of respect for the fact that family lines were being redrawn. I would acknowledge that after this proposal and this marriage, that Morgan is now my family. That I used to have a father, a mother, and a sister as my immediate family. Now I have my wife and now our daughter. I'm also acknowledging that my family is expanding and I'm asking his permission and his blessing to join his family. I now have a mother-in-law, father-in-law, and two brother-in-laws. And this new family is defined in a different way than it was before. And with a new family comes new expectations. I'm now expected to show up at family Christmases for both my parents and her parents. I'm expected to be there for family holidays. I'm expected to show up and treat them as my own family. And Jesus does this with this Passover meal. He changes our idea of family around this table. See, the Passover was supposed to be a familial meal. The father would preside over the wine and the bread and the lamb. The children would be sitting around the table asking questions about what it all meant. And Jesus changes this meal. He is the one. He is the head of the family. He is the one that is explaining the meal. And the disciples, his followers, are now brought around the table as his children. It is no longer just his blood relatives, but is now a family united by the Spirit through Christ. I think this is most telling when we look at the Gospel of John. And in chapter 13, when he describes this meal, he actually shows us that Judas Iscariot is cast out in the midst of the meal. He doesn't finish at the table, but he goes to betray Jesus. Judas wasn't allowed around this table to finish the meal because he had no place in the family. If you're not in the family, you have no place at the table. But Jesus invites all of his followers to come to himself, to come experience this family together. And in this family, there's new expectations put upon us. Jesus is rebuking the disciples here because a dispute arose among them about who's the greatest. Most likely this is a dispute that came about because of the seating arrangement of the table. A Jewish table would have the head of the family would be sitting at the head of the table, the eldest brother next to him, the most important seat. And then eventually you'd see the youngest brother at the end of the table showing that he was the least important. And while the disciples, the apostles did not have this bloodline to look to as to who was the most important, they began jockeying for position they all want to be sitting next to Jesus. They all want to be looked at as the most important of the apostles. And Jesus tells them that this is the way that the Gentiles do things. This is the way that people do things outside of our family. He says, in this family, it's different. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. I am among you as the one who serves. 
Jesus shows us that this family is meant to be defined by servant leadership. Again, looking to the Gospel of John, we see Jesus before the meal is actually washing the disciples' feet. He's literally taking on the role of a servant prior to the meal. And then he goes on to command his disciples in John 13, 34, and 35, a new command I give to you, that you must love one another in the way that I have loved you. And by this, they will know that you are my disciples. You want to be defined in this family. How you know that you're in this family and a Christian by the outside world is not by your Facebook status. It's not by the cross that you might wear on your jewelry. It's not by your political party. It's not by even showing up to church every single week. We are acknowledged as part of this family when we are those that are willing to sacrifice and die for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The way that we serve and love them in response to how Jesus has served and loved us. You want to be great in this family, you're going to come and serve your brother. You're going to look at the one next to you when you come to this table and you're going to say, I am willing to die for you. Like John Wardlaw talked about last week, bearing each other's burdens, that when you carry your own pack, you're able to pick up the one that's crushing your brother next to you as you point him back to Jesus. And this is the other piece that Jesus points us to, that when you come to this family, you are coming as one identified by continued repentance, looking only to the one who the blood and body was broken. He says to Simon, he says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. We're only able to strengthen our brothers in as much as we've been strengthened. We're only able to die for them because Jesus died for us. Jesus is telling Peter, he's saying, Satan is demanding to sift you like wheat. This process of sifting wheat back then was a, a sieve would be used to shake the wheat up. You'd shake it and the, ch the chaff and the grain would be separated. Um, and the most important piece to realize about this is it's not a hard process. It's not labor intensive. It, it takes minimal effort. And that's what he's telling Peter. He's saying, Peter, your faith is going to be shaken even tonight. And it's not going to be hard for Satan to do this. And we have to realize that when we come to this table, we're coming in acknowledgement that it's not hard for him to shake us. That there's not a person in this room that can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the prince of demons and come out on top. We're all going to fail. We're all going to fall. We're all going to step back into that temptation, into that sin every single week. But we also understand that even though it happens to Peter, who the, is built upon the church, Peter is told, you are the rock upon which I build my church. And yet he's the one that fails even this night three times denying he knows Jesus. Right after being warned about it, it takes mere hours him to do this. And so we understand our own feebleness, our own feeble hearts, but we're able to take heart in the fact that just like Peter, Jesus tells him that I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So that when we fall into temptation, when we struggle, when we fail the Lord, we're able to understand that we're not cast out like Judas. We are still a part of this family. And the only way that we remain a part of this family is because Jesus is the one holding on to us. Jesus is the one praying for us. Jesus is the one that perfects our faith in a way that he holds us together as a family. And through that, we're able to turn to one another to help unentangle each other from the sin that so ensnares. We're able to say, I'm looking to Jesus as I come to this table 
And he is the only one that keeps me as a part of this family. And we're able to tell our brother the same, that when you come to this table, you're acknowledging Jesus is the perfecter of your faith. That this week, when we confess our sin and hear the assurance of pardon that we have, it's only because of Jesus. It's only because of what he's done. And we look to these elements as the assurance that he continues to do it day after day after day. And as a result, we can die to one another telling each other, our brothers, the same thing. Bringing them to the table with us as a family. See, this, this table, this meal changes our relationships with God, but it changes our relationships with one another and as a result, we're also going to see our relationships change with the world around us. In the same way that when you become engaged, you're identified with that other person. When I got engaged to my wife, Morgan, we went up to her little village of Archbold, Ohio. And yes, it is a village, not a town. It's how tiny it is. And we go there. No one knows me. But I'm able to be identified as Morgan's fiance. And when people hear that I'm her fiance, they treat me with the same way that they would treat her. They love her. They respect her. They want to bring her in and have her over for food. And so they invite me in in the same way. Look at the contrary of that. If Morgan is to come with me to certain places, there's a lot of people that don't like me. There's a lot of people that hate me. And so as a result, when Morgan shows up to these places with these people, they're not going to like her as a result of their disdain for me. Jesus tells his disciples it's the same way when we're identified with Jesus. When you come to this table, you're taking on his identity, and the world's going to treat you the same way it treated him. He tells his disciples beforehand, when I sent you out, did you lack anything? They said nothing. That's because the world loved Jesus in this moment. Everybody wanted the miracles. Everybody wanted the food that he was providing. Everyone wanted to see this cool teaching, see the wonder that it was of Jesus of Nazareth. And so as a result, they're willing to bring in all those closest to him, bring in his entourage, give him food, give him clothing, give him whatever they needed to be close to Jesus. But Jesus says the times are changing. Now, if you don't have anything, you need to sell it and get it for yourself. No one's going to provide for you. No one's going to bring you in. Because in the same way the world is about to reject me, it's going to reject you. He quotes Isaiah 53, and we talked about it in our assurance of pardon, but if you've ever read the fullness of Isaiah 53, you understand that there's so much language in there about the sufferings of Christ, how the world has beaten him down, crushed him for our iniquities. And that's what the world is doing to Jesus coming up in this moment. This very night, he's going to go and be betrayed, stabbed in the back, arrested, tried and convicted of a crime he didn't commit, spit on, slapped, beaten, whipped. Stripped naked, nailed to a cross to die by asphyxiation. And even in his last hours, last minutes, he's going to be mocked and made fun of. That's how the world treated Jesus. And so we can't expect anything different if we're identified with him. You can expect when you walk through this life as one identified by our Lord and Savior that you are going to be stabbed in the back. You're going to be made fun of. You're going to be spoken poorly of. You're going to be cheated in a business deal. You're going to lose a relationship. You're going to be disowned by a family member because of your relationship to Christ. You might even suffer persecution. And while these are things that no one wants, none of us desires persecution. None of us desires to walk through these hardships. We're able to do so because when we come to this table, we acknowledge that this is showing us that Jesus was broken, that Jesus had his blood poured out, that we can take heart because he overcame the world, but it still hurt. And it's still going to hurt 
as we walk through it. But when we truly acknowledge that we are identified with Jesus, we're able to rejoice in our sufferings. We're able to join with Paul in rejoicing that we are considered worthy to sacrifice with Christ. When we can rejoice with Paul when he says that we can rejoice in our sufferings because these present sufferings pale in comparison with the future glory that is to come. That's what we look to in this meal. We look to in this table. We are reminded that there is a future glory. And so we can walk through these sufferings united by Christ and empowered by his spirit. See, an engagement ring promises a future reality. It promises a future wedding, a life together. And it's the promise that really you sit and wonder in. It's the promise of a marriage supper that we're going to have with Jesus. That's what we get in this meal. I don't think there's ever been someone that got engaged and the fiance doesn't spend every single day looking at that ring and longing for that day. Longing for the greatest day of their life. They spend hours and months and years at times planning this great event because it's the greatest day. And that's what this meal is. We're looking towards the final meal where we get to take that fourth cup of the Passover meal together with Christ. I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke shows us Jesus hasn't taken the fourth cup of the Passover. The one that says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And that's because we don't see it again until Revolution 21 when we're finally at this marriage supper of the Lamb. Apostle John tells us that, and I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God will dwell with us. We will be his people and he will be our God. That is the moment that we get this fourth cup of the Passover that's what we're looking to when we come to this table and take this cup this morning. As you come to this table, you understand that no matter what's going on, we're looking forward. That even though we're changed in the moment as we take it, we're also looking forward to the future promise where we're changed forever. We're united with Christ in his sufferings, but we're united with him in his glory. And so it's meant to make us long for that day. It's meant to be that engagement ring that we continue to glance at and cannot wait. We burst with excitement over the future coming of our Lord and Savior, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so it's a time that you come to this table this morning. You're able to look at it, and I pray that your heart is bursting and joining John at the end of Revelation when he says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer this morning as you come to this table together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word, but we thank you that you've given us your sacraments as well, that you have ordained this meal to be something that we partake of together, that we are able to be assured of our new identity with you, that we are able to be assured of our family together that is held as one in your name, that you are the one that perseveres for us in our faith. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us a new identity through your body and through your blood, that we are identified with you, not just in this world, but beyond this world in the new kingdom, that one day we will get to have this supper with you in person as your apostles did then, but it'll be a supper that'll be so much more complete because you have overcome finally. Lord, allow us to come this morning acknowledging our failures, but acknowledging how you fulfilled everything 
and that we can cling to you and your promise of a future together forever, that there will be a marriage feast, that we are your bride, and we're coming and saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We cannot wait for that wedding day. In your holy name we pray, amen.